Today's podcast is from early 2017, the beginning of the podcast, and it's one that you wouldn't find if you were going through and looking for something on offense, defense, or special teams. This one was with Mike Abrashoff, who was the commander of the USS Benfold, and we talked about his journey as a leader of that ship in the book that he wrote based upon it called It's Your Ship. This is a book that Bill Belichick, in an interview with Sports Illustrated, listed as his favorite leadership book. And we talk a little bit about Bill Belichick and his leadership style. We also talk about P.J. Fleck and what Mike Abershoff sees in P.J. Fleck as a leader. And this was in 2017 before he took the Minnesota job. Uh, he talked about how P.J. showed up at a car dealership where he was giving a speech and took notes on everything that Mike had to say. We also talk about just some practical application of leadership. I think this is one you're going to find very useful no matter what position you coach, where you're at in your career. There are a ton of takeaways in this one. It's one of my favorite podcasts that I've ever done. Definitely one of my favorite leadership books, and I was honored to be able to have Mike Abershoff on the podcast. Enjoy. I'm honored to have with us today former U.S. Navy Commander Mike Abershoff. He attracted worldwide attention for success in turning around a struggling ship, the USS Benfold, which became the subject of his first book, It's Your Ship. Since the instant leadership classic hit the bestseller list, he's been a fixture on a lecture circuit, spreading the empowering message that any organization can be turned around with hard work and a compassionate but firm leader. Mike graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy and served as an officer in the U.S. Navy for nearly 20 years. He was a military assistant to former Secretary of Defense William J. Perry. As a captain of the $1 billion warship, the USS Benfold, Abershoff increased intention rate among his crew from 28% to 100%, reduced the ship's operating expenditures, and dramatically improved its readiness. Abershoff left the Navy in 2001 and became the founder and CEO of Grassroots Leadership, Inc. in Arlington, Virginia. Mike, it's an honor and a privilege to have you here. Welcome to the Coach and Coordinator Show. It's a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. Mike, let's get right into it. Did you play sports as you were growing up, and, and how did that play a part in your development? Um, I played football for both uh, grade school and high school. Uh, I was an offensive tackle. Uh, actually, in high school, I played both ways, and I was a defensive tackle as well. And then I played football for three years at the Naval Academy, and was offered uh, football scholarships to Temple, William and Mary, and Duke, and, and so sports was an integral part of my life. And you know, it teaches you the value of teamwork, and that not every job is the glamorous job, and that everybody has to contribute to the best of their ability in order for in order for the team to win. And so uh, I'm. I like to tell people, you know, what I do isn't rocket science. It's just blocking and tackling better than anybody else uh, every day that I can. Well, you shared an incredible story at the AFCA convention. I think it was in 2005. And you you share that story in your book, It's Your Ship. Tell us about the USS Benfold before you took over. Well, it was one of our newer ships, and it was packed with the latest technology. And by all rights, it should have been near the top in performance. But it wasn't. It wasn't the worst ship. But we had a lousy retail tension. Discipline was awful, poor safety record, and poor performance results. And I take command of this ship and I'm thinking, you know, gee, um, I don't get to choose my missions and I can't change anybody out and I can't go back and ask for more money. And I'm thinking, I'm not smart enough to turn this ship around. I graduated in the top 80% of my class at the Naval Academy, something I'm very proud of. And uh, I'm thinking, I'm not smart enough to do this. But then I decided one day, you know what, I'm going to stop being a victim and I'm going to start focusing on the things that I can. And what I'm going to try to do 
is to treat my sailors with respect and dignity. I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to try to give them the best training that we possibly can. But what I want to do is to create a culture where I would be proud for my own son or daughter to come be a part. And uh, by focusing only on them, they turn their own ship around to become the best ship. Somebody asked me how I did it, and I said I didn't do it. The crew did it. All I did was to provide that foundation and to give them encouragement and, and empowerment, and they took ownership and, and became the best ship in the Pacific Fleet. And that's not the, the typical, I guess, stereotype you think of when, when you're looking at a, any kind of, of commander in the military, whether it's the Navy, Army, or, or any other branch. So what types of things prepared you for this situation where you took that approach? I was fortunate in that uh, immediately prior to getting command of the ship, I got assigned to be the junior military assistant to the Secretary of Defense. His name was William Perry, and I worked with him every day for 27 months. Christmas, Thanksgiving, holidays, we would visit troops in the field, and I watched how he interacted with people. And when you think of a great leader, you think a, a great leader has to be charismatic and outgoing. But William Perry wasn't. Uh, he was very soft-spoken, very introverted, yet he led with the sense of humility. And I, I came to call his leadership style, excellence without arrogance. And people seemed to stand taller in his presence because of the way he interacted with them. And instead of tearing people down, he looked for ways to build people up. And as a result, people became more loyal and dedicated and committed to him. And as I watched him every day, I'm here thinking, what's been keeping me from being that type of leader? And I used to blame the Navy, but then I realized it was me that I never step up to the plate. So when I got command of the ship, I decided, you know what, I'm not going to ask them to change and improve if I'm not willing to change my own leadership style. And so I went from yelling and barking orders to asking sailors, what do you think? And when I first asked the question, I did it by accident. It just popped into my head. I didn't have a, a game plan, but the sailor responded, nobody has ever asked me to think. And I said to him, well, if this was yours, how would you do it? And he said, this is how I would do it. And I would say, they won't go do it. And what happened was the sailor took ownership because he got to be a part of the solution and the design of the solution. And if I had ordered him to do something, he probably would have done it, but it wouldn't have been done great. And that sailor wouldn't have taken any pride or satisfaction. He would just be taking orders. And so what I what I learned from that is when people feel like they're part of the solution, when we're asking them to think about how they would do it if it was theirs, they think about it and then they take greater ownership for the results. And at the end of the day, any organization that depends on the top person barking orders is never going to succeed because all you create are order takers and, and, and they don't take accountability for the results. And as you know, in sports, you know, it's all about in running that route or, or making that block and understanding why it's important for the rest of the team that, that they can count on you. And so uh, that's what I tried to create on the ship. How do you feel that translates for some of our listeners sitting out there saying, well, there is, you know, there's only one way to do that. You know, that guy has to run that slant at six yards and break it at this angle, et cetera. I don't know how that applies to what I'm doing. So giving him ownership or asking him how he would do it, that doesn't work for me. What would you say to that, that coach? One of the highlights of my life was the 8 August 2009 edition of Sports Illustrated. And they were doing an article on a coach by the name of Bill Belichick. Some of your listeners may have heard of him. Yes. And they asked him in the 
article, what was his favorite leadership book that he ever read? And he said, it's your ship. And what's amazing about Bill Belichick is that he will take cast offs from other teams and somehow get them to play as a a teammate and to up their game. And so he takes a lot of misfits from other organizations and, and somehow gets them to work together as a team and they lead the NFL year in and year out. And for the coach that thinks otherwise, uh, Bill Belichick can't order excellence. But what he can do is to create a climate by which everybody realizes they're going to have a chance to perform at their full capability and that he's going to connect with you so that you know this is in your own best interest, not to play as an individual, but to, to play as a team. And, you know, that's why he's the, the master and he's not flashy. I don't think I've never met him in person, but I don't, he doesn't come across as terribly charismatic. He just executes on the simple thing better than anybody else and it's that execution that sets the the great leaders apart from that coach who has to sit there and bark orders all day long so it works in my industry and it works in your industry and we should look for the people who are successful how they seem to take average people or misfits from other organizations and and create winners out of them mike that it takes a little bit of courage and i i know in in my industry too there certainly is maybe a prescribed way of uh or a more popular way that you have to do it this way and you were able to really i mean and you know you talk about the tradition of the navy and how far that goes back to kind of break out of a mold what kind of persistence did it take for you personally early on to to stick to your guns and say i'm going to make it work this way you know at the beginning, I was full of self-doubt because I was challenging the way we had always done it. And I was full of tremendous insecurity. Am I doing the right thing? Uh, are they truly going to respond? And once I earned their trust, uh, that was the foundation by which we delivered all the results. Because when I would say, this is why we have to be the best, the best at this, they would say, you know, I trust you. I buy into it. I'm going to own it. And, and one of the other Uh, coaches that I think is uh, one of the most intriguing for me today is PJ Fleck in Western Michigan. Mm -hmm. And three years ago, I was speaking to a car uh, dealership. It was either, I think it was in Kalamazoo and they invited PJ to to come. And he sat in that hour long session and he filled a notebook of ideas that he was going to try that, you know, they weren't my ideas, but what I said jogged something in his mind that says, I'm going to try this differently. And I knew three years ago that PJ Fleck was going to be one of the up and comers in the coaching profession because he was inquisitive and was open to listening for somebody who may have a better idea or a different idea. And then he thought, how can I adapt this to my own situation at Western Michigan? So I'm, I'm here on the short cheering his success. So because He's a guy that I think doesn't do things the way they've always done it. He's created his own journey. He's created his own way of engaging his players, and they've responded where they trust him, and they execute with precision. And he obviously is reaching the pinnacle of what people think of as a, a great coach. He's going to have some huge, Absolutely. Oppor- huge opportunities, I'm sure, ahead of him. And with anything, though. And I, sh- and I knew just by watching him, he didn't come in and say, I'm the head coach, I know everything. He came in and it was it was William Perry. It was he had the humility humility to know that maybe he doesn't know it all, and that he's going to listen. He listened intently, and I don't know what he wrote down in that book, but I'm sure it was Mike did this. 
but I can do this even better or I can do this differently because this is what appeals to me. And so, you know, I'm not claiming credit by any means, but I can tell you that I spotted him in the audience because he was the only one who was listening intently. And he wrote a whole notebook of ideas that he came up with during my presentation that he was then going to uh, go back and, and execute on. With him, it took some time. It was a process, I'm sure, just like it was on your ship. And, and we, you know, going back to your situation, we talked about having to overcome that self-doubt. And I think it takes some time till you see results. So how long was it till you saw some validation for the work you were doing? I would say at the beginning, the crew did not trust me because it, there had been a toxic atmosphere on the ship and they thought that what I was doing was flavor of the month and that I would get bored and go back to the old way. But over time, I had to show them we're not going back to the old way. And once they started seeing some victories, they started thinking, this is fun. You know, it's fun being the leader in our industry. It's fun winning, and I'm going to get on board. And the most amazing thing that I did not anticipate was the role of peer pressure in an organization when those who did want to win stopped tolerating mediocrity uh, from their shipmates who weren't committed. And once the peer pressure kicked in, it was uncool, you know, not to get on board with where we were going. And so uh, that's one thing that leaders underestimate is, you know, once you can create this culture where the majority of people get it, they'll help you lead uh, those who, who are resistant uh, to come around and to be part of the team. And you mentioned the word fun as part of that culture. How important is it to create that fun environment? And I think, you know, you did some things that you called fun for fun's sake as well in, in creating this culture. Can you shed some light on those types of things that you do to create a culture that's not just producing excellence, but is also fun for the people involved? Well, to get anywhere in life, you got to work hard. Nobody's going to hand you anything these days. But one, you get satisfaction out of winning, and that's fun. But two, you can have some fun along the way to, to achieving that that satisfaction. And I would ask sailors, how can we have some fun on this ship? And, you know, one sailor says, why don't we buy a stereo system and every Thursday night we're at sea, set it up on the flight deck, listen to jazz and watch the sunset. And, you know, I thought, great idea. So we went out and bought the finest sound system that we could. Uh, first Thursday night, we're out there listening to jazz and watching the sunset. And the sailor comes up to me and says, this is kind of cool, but it'd be cooler if we could smoke cigars while listening to jazz and watching the sunset. And so we started smoking cigars, uh, watching sunset and listening to jazz. And it helped to create a sense of camaraderie and a sense of esprit de corps. And people stopped pointing fingers at each other and instead started working together better as a team uh, across, you know, departmental lines on the ship. And so when you create a fun atmosphere, people, I think, will become more interested in working together with their shipmates to, to drive excellence. And for football teams, that really means taking the focus off of the field. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I did, I, but it's both on the field and off the field that uh, you've got to create a brotherhood where you support each other and keep each other out of trouble, both on the field and, and off the field. That if somebody's doing something stupid, you got to go up to them and say, hey, shipmate, this isn't why. You might want to rethink what you're doing. So it's, it's about holding each other accountable. And when people have that sense of ownership, uh, that will translate both on the field, in school, and, and, and off the field. So as you, you continue to create this culture of fun, this culture of success, you're starting to get results. Obviously, as a leader, you know, you want to keep things moving forward. What becomes your focus at that point? I'm seeing results now. I have the validation for this 
people are buying in, they're having fun. Now what do you do as a leader? You keep it going. You keep complacency from setting in and you get people to realize that people are going to be out there gunning for you and that if you let up, you know, you're going to fall behind. And so once we got to that position of winning, it was how do we continue it? And I wanted the legacy that I didn't want my ship to fall apart the day I left because I have seen ships that fall apart whenever the captain leaves. And I always said to myself, if that happens to me, it means I haven't done my job because I want to leave this ship in position to do even better after I leave. And what happened in years three and four after I left the ship, Ben Fold won the award for best ship in the Navy. So they got better, and that was my legacy, that we didn't fall apart the day I left. And so if a coach is out there and uh, the organization falls apart when he isn't there, you know, he might want to think how to up his game certainly has a parallel when you think about what coaches try to do with their programs. You've you've explained really exactly it for someone who comes in and, and doesn't have that program that has the tradition of excellence, that you have to start that. You have to build a culture. You want to get to the point where you're winning, and then that's exactly it. What's the legacy? What can you build, not just now, but for the future? And I think that's an important lesson for really anybody coaching football or in any organization that you know, it shouldn't be, fall apart because one piece of the puzzle leaves, that you should be setting it up for success for a long time, regardless of who's and, there. But, but more importantly than that is they're forming the character and the foundation for young men to do even better in life. And, and the results will be evident you know, 15, 20 years later when that person, you know, blossoms and, and does great things in the community. And I just started focusing on this uh, this summer. It's not every ship will produce an admiral because statistically there are fewer admirals than we have ships. My second in command is now a two-star and president of the Naval War College. One of my other officers just got selected for admiral uh, this summer. And I've got three other officers who are in command of squadrons of six ships. And two of those three may make Admiral next year. So a ship that may, that statistically may not produce any, we have the potential, we've already produced two admirals and uh, may produce as many as four. And so um, did I, do I take credit for that? Heck no. But do I take pride in knowing that maybe we helped improve their character and their leadership style so that that they could put the pieces together and achieve that success. Yeah, I feel like I played a part of it. And so that's where the satisfaction comes from is as a coach is, you know, 10, 15 years down the line saying, you know, he was one of my players and, and I take great pride in, in the success that he's enjoying today. Some of the greatest coaches will, will point to that. I know John Wooden was one who would always point to the success of the players, not not with the number of championships they won, but with what they went on to become. The great, great fathers, they were great husbands. They became doctors, lawyers. They were helping the world. And obviously that's part of the legacy of success as well. Exactly right. So you mentioned that you took over a, a group. They, you know, for most of us, it is that situation. We have the players we have. You know, we don't get to recruit. They come up through our program. That's what we have to deal with. Now, there are those listeners out there who do get to recruit. They do get to sign. You know, moving into the professional level, so, some of our guests on the show have the ability to draft top talent. So now, how do you deal with that top talent when you're putting something together, that high level where you do have the ability to recruit, but now you got to deal with maybe the egos, maybe the guys who, who are looking for, you know, what, uh, I want the newest, biggest, best, etc. How does that work into this process of, of building the type of culture that you did? 
You know, it's something that I'm not terribly good at. And so I don't have the best recommendations. I have seen commanding officers of ships try to poach talent from other ships and to rig the assignment system so that they would get the best officers. And invariably, it never translated into performance because of the egos and because they didn't work together better as a team. And so when you look at my officers and my crew, and and let's take the enlisted to make master chief in the u.s navy only one percent will ever make master chief and this summer after i found out two of my officers made admiral i called my retired my master chief who's now retired and i told him about the statistic about how well the officers were doing and he said that's only half the story because five of the chiefs off the ship went on to become master chiefs which is the senior enlisted rank in the navy where statistically they only have a one percent chance and so we didn't have super Superstars on that ship, but we created a culture by which people could learn how to become superstars. I'd rather have people who are hungry and and realize that the success of any team is based on teamwork than to have these super talented people who have huge egos and won't work together with each other. And so I've never chosen my own crew and it's tough to do. And one or two of those captains who tried it failed miserably. So I don't have the experience to tell, you know, those coaches who can, you know, go out and recruit the best how to do it, but just to realize that egos will be an issue and how you manage those egos will have an effect, you know, on those people in the pits, you know, doing the blocking and tackling and, and that it's an issue that they have to think through and realize that it will keep them from maximizing position if they performance, if they don't get it right. It really, it really becomes teamwork over talent. That's the key in those situations. You could have all kinds of talent, but if you can't get it to play together, it doesn't really do you a lot of good. Right. Well, Mike, we have some threats to our game, and I know it's a game you grew up playing and, and made a difference in your life. Specifically, over the course of interviewing 50 or so coaches consistently, two things have come up in talking to them. And, and the first obviously relates to the one we see in the media all the time, the concussion issue, the safety issue, which now is is really becoming a monster in and of itself, just how it's uh, approached by the media. Uh, the second one is this focus on, at a very young age, on specialization on making little Johnny, he's he's going to be the next quarterback and that's all he's going to learn. I'm going to get him a trainer and this is all he's going to focus on year round. I think the important part for us as, as coaches is to create a culture of learning and somehow we have to get that learning down to our, our youngest levels of our feeder programs where those coaches need to understand the importance of the big picture. And I know on the Benfold, you created a culture of learning as well. So what are some things we could maybe learn from that to help solve some of these problems uh, for the, that present a, a threat to the future of our game? You know, it is a dangerous sport. And, and once they're out on the field, you know, bad things do happen. But I was at an event six weeks ago and the event planner from uh, North North Hills in Pittsburgh, uh, her son played, was playing for uh, the local high school there. And he suffered a traumatic brain injury, not on the field, but in hazing from the other players as they were hazing, which is something that they've done every year to the incoming class. If I'm a coach out there today, I will do everything in my power to make sure that we don't take unnecessary risks that add to the possibility um, of our people getting injured. And hazing is one of the things that is a relic that needs to be 
ditched uh, to the scrap heap of history. And those coaches can be out there leading and knowing what's going on and making sure hazing isn't going on in their teams and that it will be dealt with and that noncompliance will be dealt with. And so, and, and that's a mindset change because, you know, a lot of people in the feeder programs are used to hazing, but it's something that, that needs to stop and needed to stop yesterday. And this lady's son is still having issues today, six years later uh, from a hazing incident uh, in high school football. And so it is a violent sport and we need to do everything to educate our people on how to be smart and not take unnecessary risks. And it starts with the coach. Thinking of a coach's strategy on the field, and I know within what you're doing on a ship, there's there's things that physically have to happen. There's the mental part of it. In any training, you know, what what is the strategy of or the emphasis of developing the mind versus developing the body? What I used to do, uh, I would sit on my bridge wing chair and I would go through what if scenarios. And what I would try to do was to envision every scenario that we could possibly face and then create a training program to be able to uh, face that that possible scenario that I dreamed up. And so what coaching is about is having the presence of mind to think through those what-if scenarios so that and train yourself and your team to respond to them so that in the heat of battle, if you if it comes up, they're already pre-trained on how to respond to it. And that happens both on the field and also on the ship. And what I was able to do because I had the time to, I made the time to come up with what if scenarios. I then created the training program that was tougher than anything we would ever see in combat. So that I knew that in the heat of battle, in the heat of the moment, when something happened, my people were trained and ready to respond. And that all comes down to discipline. And if people are disciplined and you train them properly, and if you've thought up those what if scenarios in, in the heat of the moment out on the field or in the heat of the moment out in combat, that you're able to adapt and adjust to the change because you've been trained uh, to perfection. And that's what we tried to do on the ship. Mike, I asked my coaches some questions about their learning. And obviously your, your learning as a leader has a lot of value to what we do as well. So as a young officer in the Navy, what's a mistake that you made and what did you learn from it? berating people in public and in the heat of the moment sometimes you uh you lose your cool and you humiliate somebody in public and i realize that it doesn't do any good to do that and that it, it shows that i'm a smaller leader so what i tried to do was to praise in public and correct in private and never to become emotional about it but just to be factual about it and this is why we have to do it this way and to get that point across so if i lose my cool i now realize that i'm the one who has failed uh not my sailors so the key is to one you know to strive for excellence you know take pride in being the best but not to become emotional and to be clear-headed because when you're emotional you make bad decisions that you regret later and so that was uh, the thing i learned coming up through the ranks never to to lose your cool and What's the best piece of advice you learned coming up through the ranks? It was William Perry. He was the Secretary of Defense. It was my last day working for him before going to command of the ship. And he brought me in and said, Mike, if you're ever disappointed in an outcome, don't blame your people first, but instead look inward and ask yourself how you failed uh, and not anticipating what needed to be done. So I stopped pointing fingers at others. I stopped blaming them. I assumed they wanted to do, to do a great job. And if I didn't get the results I was looking for, I looked inward and said, what do I need to do better? How do I need to up my game? 
we obviously have a lot to learn from your stories in, in your books. So other than your books, what, what's a book you'd recommend to our listeners? John Maxwell has a great book, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, um, that a lot of people who read my book also like his. So that would be one I could recommend. What advice would you give uh, a young coach, guy taking the reins for the first time, a young head coach, what advice would you give him? That you're you're coaching for the long term and not just short term results. And so you need to put the building blocks in place. Success isn't going to come overnight and it's not easy. And if you don't have the foundation in place, you're never going to build a a sturdy program. And so, um, and it's the basics. You know, we weren't flashy. Um, I couldn't change the rest of the Navy. All we did was executed on the basics better than anybody else. And, And that's how we became the leader in our industry. So, you know, there's nothing sexy about our sports. It's just about our sports or, you know, being in the Navy. It's executing better than anybody else. And to do that, you have to have discipline and you have to have the strong foundation for it. And so it's about building that that strong foundation that will permit you to be great year after year. Mike, who's someone from the past that you would like to go back, you know, someone who's who's no longer with us, go back and learn from, whether it was as, as a leader for you, maybe it was, you know, military background or, you know, in another area, who's someone you would like to learn from? That's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that question. And, um, I guess, you know, it'd be my father because there, there have been certain times since he passed away that I, I wanted, I said, gee, I wish I could go back and talk to him and, uh, and, and gain his experience. And so, you know, my father never made a lot of money, but he, uh, was instrumental in our community in helping, uh, disadvantaged, uh, people and people less fortunate than ourselves. And, um, he had a heart of gold and he always looked to find the best in people instead of looking to find the worst in people. Because if we're looking to find the worst, we're going to find it. But if we're looking to find the best in people so that we can make them even better, to me, that's the key to to being a great leader, is how do you draw that best out of people and how you build them up instead of how you tear them down. Who's someone out there currently doing that, drawing the best out of people that you think would be great to spend some time with and learn how he or she is doing it? Uh, PJ Fleck. I'm, I'm intrigued. Uh, by what he's doing. Uh, I think he's going to be a fantastic uh, head coach at a major program. And, um, and he's the one I think out there that uh, most espouses uh, the, the type of leadership that I talk about. Mike, here's our, our final question. I always finish with helping our listeners find the winning edge. What's something you could give them to, to grasp onto and some steps they could take to help them find the winning edge in their program? If you're disappointed in an outcome, don't blame your your players first, but look inward and ask yourself how you failed to to prepare them to be successful and that you try to create an organization where you would be proud to have your own sons or daughters come be a part. You want your sons or daughters not to get injured uh, and to be safe, then take care of the assets that you have and realize that you're building character for the long term and and not just, you know, short term wins. And that at the end of the day, when you're 80 years old and sitting in your rocking chair, your satisfaction is not going to come from the wins and the losses, but rather what your players rose to become in life and how they're carrying on what they learned from you. Now, to the end of the day, that's where the, the true satisfaction comes from. That's sustainable for the long term. Mike, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. How can our listeners uh, follow what you do or connect with you on social media? Well, I've got a website, uh, MikeAbershoff.com, and my email is Mike at MikeAbershoff.com. And, um, 
you know, uh, I wrote it's your ship and that's probably the best of the three books. And so, uh, it makes a great Christmas gift and, uh, and birthday gift. And, and so, uh, um, I'm awfully proud of it. I read it from time to time. I wrote it 15 years ago and I'm not embarrassed by one thing I put in there. And I think it has stood the test of time in that it's still, uh, it's now sold over a million copies and published in eight different languages. And I'm, and I'm awfully humbled by that, but also very proud of it. And it all comes down from how you find the best in people and get them to perform at a level that others can't and in informing their character and their future. And, and that's what it's your ship is about. Mike, I really appreciate you taking the time, and, and I appreciate how you translated a lot of that directly to what we do here as coaches and in football. And again, thank you, and it was great to speak with you. You got it, Keith. Good luck to you. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. I hope you found this one as useful as I did. If you're enjoying the podcast, please head over to iTunes and click five star for rate. If you have a minute, write a review. The same applies on Spotify. Follow me on Twitter at Coach K Grabowski and check out our new website. We're going to continue to put our podcasts on there along with some other content that you're really going to enjoy. That is at coachandcoordinator.com.